Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. God be glorified in the, in the life and the ministry and the praises of his people assembled on his day uh, in his house together with one mind and with one heart to glorify Jesus. As we prepare to open up God's word, let's ask Jesus to open our hearts. Lord Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, and you hold the key of David. Lord Jesus, you open and no one can shut. Lord Jesus, you shut and no one can open. And so, Lord Jesus, now in this moment, as we open your word, we ask you to open our hearts. Too long have they been closed in unbelief and pride and sin. Lord Jesus, open our hearts and be glorified in the receiving of your word. Amen. The text today is just one verse out of James 4, verse 10, which has an and in the middle of it, and it just tips back and forth like a seesaw. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the verse that we're in in James chapter 4, but the sermon is not going to be from that verse. This will be a sermon that takes that concept of pride and humility and that and and that promise that's reflected in the very like parallel syntax of that actual little verse, and we're going to trace it throughout a whole bunch of different passages of scripture about pride and humility. And what I want to do by tracing this through scripture is I want to prove to you from the word of God, that there's almost like nothing that God finds more distasteful than pride. And I want to prove to you from the word of God that there's almost nothing that God finds more like attractive and precious than humility. Far be it from me to know exactly how everything works in the heart of God. There's a mystery there. But when you catalog up all these different verses, it seems to be clear that the loathing that God has for pride is unique among all other sins that he righteously hates and abhors. And it seems when you add all the verses up, the the promise of exaltation and blessing and the very attraction that the heart of God has toward humility is something very, very special. So if you could, if you don't think this is uh, disrespectful, picture God as our king, like walking through his castle. And picture him going down, down, down the stairs to the dungeon of the castle. And it smells down there and there's rats and sewage and the king is walking down the stone hallway and he's looking in every little prison cell. Why is she in there? Well, because she stole. Well, why is he in there? Well, because he murdered someone. Well, why is she in there? 
Why is he in there? And as the king inspects the prison cells, he comes to a cell. Why is that man in there? Well, he's in there because of pride. And it's almost as if the king says, of all these prisoners who are righteously imprisoned, that one deserves it the most. And then the king walks up the stairs and back into the castle. And if you've ever been in a castle, or if like most people, you've never been in a castle, but you just brewed yourself a cup of hot tea and you watch Downton Abbey, you know what this is like. It's called the gallery of the castle. And it's this huge room and every square inch of the walls is filled with artwork, pictures of this and that and the other thing. And the king is inspecting all of the artwork in his gallery, only it's not people and horses. It's, uh, it's uh, what we'd call the, the virtues or the good fruits of the spirit. And so there's a picture of generosity. The king likes that picture. And then there's a picture of gentleness. The king likes that picture. There's a picture of patience. The king likes that picture. But then the king stops before a picture of humility. And the king says, of all the portraits on these walls, that's my favorite one. I just want to show you that like from the time of the angels before people were created, all the way to the book of Revelation, the Bible is so filled with this extra level of loathing that God has for pride. And the Bible is so filled with this marvelous commendation of humility that it's almost as if there's nothing God loves as much as humility and there's nothing God loathes as much as pride. So in this sermon from James 4, verse 10, where we're really not gonna even turn to James 4, 10, the first place I'd ask you to turn to is Isaiah chapter 14. The book of Psalms is like in the middle of the Bible. And if you land on the book of Psalms, Isaiah and the prophets are to the right of the Psalms. So you can just turn a few more pages and you'll see Isaiah chapter 14. And Isaiah 14, well, right away we're at kind of this interpretive issue. Uh, what happens in the Bible sometimes is uh, there'll, be a, there'll be something in the prophets about an earthly event. Oh, but the language that's used in the prophecy makes it much grander than just one little event. And this is the kind of thing, in Isaiah 14, it's a prophecy, or actually in the the Hebrew genre is called, it's a taunt. You ever see children taunting each other on the playground? This is a taunt against the ruler of of Babylon. And uh, he was the kind of guy that, you know, he just looked out at the world and he just said, this world is so lucky that a guy like me is in the world. You know, he just thought he was all of that plus a side of curly fries. And he was so proud and Isaiah just taunts him down, 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 down to below the worst spot in the dungeon. And yet here in Isaiah 14 is where we have, you recognize, this is the Latin word, Lucifer. You know what that means? That's Latin for uh, bearer of the light. You know, lucid, the word light, elucidate. This is the title in uh, Isaiah 14, verse 12, O day star, son of dawn. This is the name Lucifer. So it's about this earthly ruler 
but it's really about the ruler of the realms of wickedness, and it is about his pride. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities and didn't let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Why does God hate pride so much? Maybe the first way to answer that question, why does God hate pride so much, is this. Pride was the first sin. Pride was the first sin. And as the first sin, pride is a mother sin that gives birth to so many deformed depravities of sin. We know from here, maybe there's a hint of it in Ezekiel, a hint of it in Job, a couple other places, that of the orders of angels, Lucifer was like the highest. Again, the Hebrew is called the covering cherub, like the overseeing cherub. And so he has this, he has this high spot. He's exalted. And yet, instead of receiving that as a gift in humility, he doesn't see how exalted he is. The only thing he sees is the gap between where he is and where God is. And in pride, he grasps for that gap. So pride was the first sin because sin erupted in a sinless universe, not from Eve and Adam, but from Lucifer. And then from that cosmic realm, as if that pollution were not enough, Lucifer hatches this plan to come down to this earth and to find the, as it were, covering cherub of this earth, which is the, the highest order of creation on this earth, which is men and women. And he finds a way to get the men and women to not receive the gift of God. Look at all this garden. Look at everything God's given us. He finds a way to talk Eve and Adam into not receiving that garden in humility, but in trying to grasp for the one tree forbidden them in pride. Why does God hate pride so much? Because pride was the first sin, and pride is the mother of more and more sin. And for Satan's attempt to exalt himself, what happened? Oh, he was cut low. So low that he says, you're going to go, you're going to wriggle on your belly on the ground. No, no legs separating you from the ground. You're going to just lick the dust. In his attempt to exalt himself, he's brought low. And I can give away the surprise ending because we are in a Christian church, so the ending is never a surprise. 
the surprise ending is, if God exalts the humble and God humbles the proud, the marvel of the gospel is that the most exalted one, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, humbled himself not just to die, but to die the shameful death of a cross, cross in such humiliation and such obedience. Now, God has exalted him, as it were, as it were even possible, higher than he was before. So that not only in this life, but in the life to come, every one of the angels and every one of the redeemed humanity will spend our time in heaven uh, uh, going on and on about how exalted Jesus is and it'll just get better and better and better. Why does God hate pride so much? Because pride was the first sin. Pride's the mother of more and more sins. Why does God hate pride so much? Perhaps a second way to answer that question is this. Pride is unbelief. And unbelief makes everything else permissible. Why does God hate pride so much? Because pride is unbelief. And unbelief makes other kinds of sin plausible, permissible, even popular, and celebrated. Well, God righteously hates all sin. When the king walks through that dungeon, he knows every one of those deserves what they're receiving. But biblical evidence abounds that God, in a unique way, loathes pride. And I think it's because pride is unbelief that makes every other kind of sin permissible. If you're in Isaiah, you can go back to uh, Proverbs chapter 6. It's just to the right of the book of Psalms. And in Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon, the wisdom writer, says, I'm going to give you a bullet point list of six, no, seven things that God hates. And here we find it in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, shed innocent blood, and the list goes on. The very first thing on the list is an arrogant countenance of face. Haughty, proud eyes. And then it says, uh, a lying tongue, and then it says hands that shed innocent blood. So it's almost as if our king sees this, this, this prisoner in the dungeon, and why is he there? Because he murdered someone. But first on the list are these haughty, arrogant eyes, which is a countenance of unbelief and pride that makes murder permissible that makes every other kind of sin seem plausible and what I should do because I have to take care of me. Why does God hate pride so much? Because pride is unbelief. Their kind of sin seem plausible and what I should do because I have to take care of me. Why does God hate pride so much? Because pride is unbelief, which makes every other kind of sin permissible. In Proverbs 8, Verses 12 and 13, Proverbs 8, 12, I wisdom dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I don't want to twist too far into the meaning of that one proverb, but pride comes first and all the ways of evil spin out of that. Pride is unbelief that makes every other kind of sin seem permissible and plausible.
Jesus said, the greatest commandment, love God. Second one's like it, love your neighbor. Well, pride is unbelief that ruins my relationship with God. And pride is an insanity of unbelief that makes my neighbor someone I'm competing with or someone I'm dominating over rather than someone I'm loving and serving. Pride, makes, pride ruins your relationships and it makes them all unstable. Pride is a, the first sin, it's a mother sin, and pride is also an unbelief that makes all other sin plausible. I like how Jonathan Edwards put it. He has a, two sentences about pride being the worst thing, this is what he says. The first and worst cause of the troubles that abound is pride. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Man, I love me some Ed Edwardsian language. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit. Because pride then, like driving in a fog this morning, pride then, it, it, it brings this smoke, this fog into your mind and your eyesight. And then other sin becomes plausible and even attractive because of your pride. Do you recognize the voice of pride as the voice of unbelief? Do you recognize this voice? Has God really said? That is unbelief, which is pride. Do you recognize this voice? You surely will not die. This is unbelief, which is pride. Any profession of humility that doesn't come along with it an absolute surrender to the word of God is phony, false humility. You guys know there's, there's like, there's, I can't find a stronger way to say how central it is to the life and ministry of Racine Bible Church that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. We, we prize these things because even in our day and age, there are people who profess to be Christians and they say, well, we're humble, and yet they don't receive and submit to the full authority of Scripture. And this is the very essence of pride, to refuse to believe the Scripture and to claim to be a humble Christian by refusing to submit to the inerrant and authoritative word of God is it's absolutely cosmically impossible. To be humble is to know that God is God, and to know that God is God is to receive God's revelation fully and completely. Sincere submission to God leads to two conclusions. These are not complicated conclusions. Receiving God's word and believing in God leads to two non-complicated conclusions. Conclusion number one, God is great. Conclusion number two, I am not. As humility grows, watch this, as humility grows, so my conviction to believe absolutely everything God has said grows along with it. And any refusal to submit to Scripture is the growth of pride. It's never the growth of sort of a, a humble, honest doubt. 
To grow in humility is to grow in submitting to everything God has said, and at the same time, to grow in humility is to grow in my propensity to question everything that I say to me. I don't trust my own heart. I don't trust my own mind. I don't trust my own opinion. So many are hindered from the walk of humility by just this, by trusting in their own understanding. What's the most popular proverb? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I wish I had a... We used to have all these word magnets on our fridge and you could make a poem or the kids could make a story about how bad their sister was and get in trouble or whatever. Like we would put all these magnets. I want to do like the word magnets of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 paralleled with James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourself before God and he will exalt you. So here's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, 5a. That's James 4, 10a. Humble yourself before God. 5B, do not lean on your own understanding. That's the same thing. First half of James 4.10. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him. That's again, the first half of James 4.10. Humble yourself before God. But look then, and he will make straight your paths. That's James 4.10b. And he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord. Pride is a refusal to believe God. And pride is an insistence on my own understanding. If pride is unbelief, then the antidote to pride is a humility. And humility manifests itself. I don't know if you've ever, th- I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but think about it. How does humility manifest itself? Humility manifests itself in my life in a persistent skepticism toward everything I tell myself and a persistent submission to everything God has said to me. Pride manifests itself in my life by a persistent skepticism towards God's word and a a, a persistent addiction to my own way of seeing things and my own way of thinking about things. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. That's Proverbs 12, 15. One more proverb for you, Proverbs 26, 12. Listen to this one, 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Solomon asked a question in Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. This is, if you know half if you know one-eighth, if you know one-sixteenth of what the book of Proverbs says about the fool, you know that the fool is like the, the, the lowest of the lowest of the low and everything bad is going to happen to them. And yet in this verse, God just buttonholed you and said, do you see that fool? They are in a way better position than you are if you trust you. He says that's the worst thing you can do. Pride is unbelief where I believe myself over against God. Humility is the opposite of that. Well, if the first question is why does God hate pride, maybe the second question is then 
why and how should I humble myself? Why and how should I humble myself? Well, the first reason that we should humble ourselves is is very simply right there in James 4.10. The reason is because humility will always be rewarded by God. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will, he will exalt you. This statement is so often in the Old Testament. It is so often in the epistles. It's in James. It's in Peter. It's in Hebrews. And it's so often filled up in the Gospels. Remember the, remember the parable Jesus said in Luke 14 about the wedding feast? This, this is a good one. Like, th- this guy walks in, and he's like, he's going to be the life of the party and like Mr. Fancy Pants. And so he walks to the feast, and he takes the best seat at the table. Like, everyone's going to have all eyes on me. And then the, the king of the feast comes in and says, oh, you shouldn't be sitting at the prize spot on the table. Go sit over there at the folding table with the kids, you know. And he's humiliated. And Jesus ends that parable with this statement in Luke 14, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of almighty Jesus Christ. And when he says that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, there is no exception to the word of almighty Christ. And Jesus is is so, like I said, this picture of humility is so attractive to him and the sin of pride is so loathsome to him that just uh, four chapters later in Luke 18, Jesus tells another parable, one of his most beloved parables, remember, about two people that go to church, a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the tax collector can't even look up and all he says is, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee, can't do anything but look around and take a deep breath and say, everyone in this church is lucky and blessed that somebody like me is here. And he says, God, aren't you lucky to have me because I'm not like this tax collector. And Jesus ends that parable the same way. Luke 18, verse 14, the living Christ says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be, shall be, this is the word of Jesus, shall be exalted. Humility always leads to exaltation and pride always leads to devastation. And so we we just, I don't know why, but we just climb all over each other to try to get to the top of the mountain. I see it all the time. Like we're just, we're just, kicking the person behind us because I want to get to the top of the mountain. And finally, one of us gets to the top of the mountain and she's there or he's there. But don't you see? Don't you see what happens? God sends the rain, not not the rain of uh, fire and brimstone, but the scripture says the rain is God's blessing. The rain is God's favor. The rain is God's mercy. The rain is God's love. And we all know that when the rain comes down, it's the valleys that fill first. And that lone woman or lone man who shoved everybody else out of the way and made it to the top just watches, parched, as the blessings just slide down 
to the valleys. We humble ourselves because humility will always be rewarded by Jesus. There's a second reason why we should humble ourselves and put it like this, humility, we should humble ourselves because humility restores sanity. Humility restores sanity. Or the full sentence is, humility restores sanity in repentance and worship. Humility restores sanity in repentance and worship. Years ago, I had a biblical counselor tell me, repentance and worship are two forms of sanity. And then he said the same thing, just a slightly different way. Repentance and worship are two forms of humility. And humility restores sanity in repentance and worship. Because all sin is insanity. It's the craziness of going my own way against Almighty God. And repentance is the sanity of saying, what am I doing? As if my way is more wise than God's way. God, I'm sorry, I repent. And worship is... Worship is to finally be done. Trying to be the center of everything, trying to get everyone to look at me, and it's the blessed sanity of saying, all glory be to God forever and ever. That's worship. And so repentance is turning from the insanity of sin to embrace God's will in obedience, and worship is turning from the insanity of pride to living in a God-centered way where God is to be glorified. You ever know somebody and you would say that they are eccentric? This is a title that we use for some old lady on our street who has 19 cats, you know, and like she only eats tater tots and she's just eccentric in in so many ways that we can't understand. Just, you know, the etymology of that word, eccentric, to live off center. It's only when you worship that you are living centered on the center of the universe, which is God and God alone. And every moment when you don't worship, you are living eccentrically. And the the destruction, the devastation, the loneliness, the wrecked relationships, they all flow therefrom. To live without repentance is to live in the insanity of sin, and to live without worship is to live eccentrically with something else at the center, and it never works. There's an ancient truism that's as true as it is ancient. It's simply this. Those that know God will be humble, and those who know God must be humble, because God is God, and the only response of a living being before Almighty God is to fall down if not on my face, on my knees, somehow to fall down. And those who know themselves can't be proud because we see how insane our sin makes us. We want the sanity of God's will, God's grace in our lives. Well, can I give you four answers to the, brief answers to the question, how do I humble myself? If that's why God hates pride and why God always exalts the humble, then here's the practical question. How do I humble myself? Number one, decide daily to be humble. This is, it sounds obvious, but I'll say it again. Decide daily to be humble. 
To be humble is a decision. James 4.10, the, the imperative verb is reflexive. He says, you humble yourself. It, it's almost like he's saying, don't wait for God to do it. Don't wait for circumstances to do it. You humble yourself. It is a decision that you make daily. It is an intentional recognition. Several years ago, with our pastoral staff, I led them through reading this book by Pastor Crawford Loritz on uh, servant leadership. It's a good book. And in the first or second page of that book, he says, humility is the key to leadership. And this is what he says. Humility is the intentional recognition that God is everything to you and that you are nothing without God. Humility is the acknowledgement that your life is not about you and that the needs of others are more important than your own. If that's the first page, you can see why that's a worthy book on leadership because that, that's, the, that's the key feature of Jesus-like leadership. Decide daily to be humble. How do I humble myself? Number two, begin each day in the word and prayer. Find that in the word which makes God great and meditate on it all day. Find that in the word that motivates you to hate and repent of your sin and meditate on that. Get into the word. Get into the word. Because in the word, we have deliverance from the sanity of our own, the insanity of our own point of view. Read a little book recently by John Stott on the importance of reading scripture, and I love the way he said it. He was maybe countering people who said, oh, if you read scripture all the time, you're just imprisoned to the thoughts of God. And Stott says, is submission of our minds to the mind of Christ an intellectual imprisonment? Not really. It certainly is a surrender of liberty, for no Christian can be a free thinker. We're, we think with Christ. Yet it is a surrender which is truly freedom. Finally to be free from our miserable subjectivity and finally to be free from the bondage of the current whims and fancies of the age in which we live. Beloved, if the church needs anything, it is not to get baptized again in the whims and fancies of the age we live in enough of that, enough of that. The church needs to be saturated in the mind of God in Scripture. Begin the day in the word and prayer. Number three, train yourself to be teachable. Train yourself to be teachable. Ask yourself this question, am I teachable? And when I say ask yourself, uh, scratch that. I don't mean go look in the mirror, fix your hair and say, am I teachable? What I mean is, get ready for the black and blue. What I mean is, find three people who know you well, and you ask them, am I teachable? And could you tell me a way that I haven't been teachable in the last couple weeks, or could you show me a way that I have been teachable in the last couple of weeks? That'll open your eyes. Train yourself to be teachable. Know, know, do, do you know how much you don't know? And do you admit how much you don't know? Pride makes me afraid to admit that I don't know. So pride is more concerned about looking smart and humility is a genuine desire to be wise. But to grow in humility, you have to admit that you're not all that smart on your own. So you see how that works. You, you want to be someone who loves the truth. This is how it works. You'll see this over and over again. This is how it works. You want to be someone who loves the truth. 
Well, you'll never love the truth unless you love being taught the truth. And you will never love being taught if you are busy defending the hollow claim that you already know everything about everything and you don't need anybody to teach you. It'll never work. Train yourself to be humble. Proverbs 15, 32, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. There's a word. Proverbs 15, 32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. The Solomonic little aphorism there is, you love yourself and your opinion about things, and that makes you hate yourself and hasten your own destruction. But if you would loathe your own way of thinking, this would be to love yourself and your prosperity by becoming humble before God. And number four, stay near the cross and the doctrines of grace. Stay near the cross and the doctrines of grace. I suppose we could go to a bookstore, like if there still is a brick and mortar bookstore, Amazon that evil corporation is taking over the world. But if we go into a bookstore, we could look at, we could probably find books on humility by non-Christian writers. They would have tactics and techniques about humility. And at least for me, those books would be useless because hum my humility comes from knowing Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. That's where humility comes from. That's where it all comes from. Stay near the cross and the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace are, I, it's fine with me if you call it Calvinism. It's fine with me if you call it Reformed theology. The doctrines of grace are the doctrines of our salvation, which means that by grace we've been saved through faith, and that faith is not humanly meritorious. That faith itself is the gift of God. I love those doctrines of grace because honestly, like whatever bad rap Calvinism gets, to me, I've, I've never found something that so obliterates human pride and so wells up in the human heart with gratitude and joy as these precious doctrines of grace. Never found anything like it. It doesn't just kind of paint over them. It removes them all together. The story's told of Charles Spurgeon, his big rotund uh, English minister, and he finished his sermon, as sometimes happens to me when I finish my sermon, and this woman from the church comes up with her Bible open, and she says to him, Dr. Spurgeon, I have a problem with this verse. And it's open to Romans chapter 9. Remember what Romans chapter 9 says? Dr. Grace says, Romans chapter 9 is where God says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. And she says, Dr. Spurgeon, I have a problem with that verse. I have a problem with God hating Esau. And Charles Spurgeon says, perhaps with a tear in his eye, he says, oh, sister, I have a problem with that verse too. How could God love Jacob? And how could he love me? And how could he love you? There's nothing as precious to us as this marvelous truth that though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be held on to selfishly, but he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the reality of the gospel is that God in humility saved proud, undeserving sinners, not just by dying for them, but by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this marvelous exchange, mine, mine was the transgression, but he, he took all the shame. To see the humbled, dying son of God condemned in my place. This leads to a humility which leads to an exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus lived for us. He died for us. Jesus rose again for us and a day is hurtling toward us where Jesus will come back for us. And until that day, we are filled with the spirit of Jesus And so we hate pride. And so we love and cherish humility. Let's pray. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.